0: That's great. Well, thank you, Nelson, and good morning for those of you as well. I was going to say those of you that don't mo- don't know me, but I just had an introduction. You know, my name is Carrie. Uh, my wife, Crystal, and I have been part of the Artisan community for about four and a half years. Let's let's not lose any months. Uh, four and a half years since Lent, Lent 2017. And this is actually sort of a big moment for me. Actually, uh, this is my first time preaching here at Artisan. And it's almost six years to the day since I last preached in our previous church community. You can probably appreciate it's been quite a journey between here and there. So when I say that I'm grateful to be here and to have this opportunity, I say that with real feeling and with real gratitude. As Nelson said, we've been working our way through a four-part series over the last few weeks around this idea of making space to process the different experiences that we've had through the pandemic. Nelson led us through a space for lament and confession and onwards into a space for deconstruction and renovation. Scott then led us into a space for celebration and hope. And today I have the weighty task of helping us hold space together for mourning and for comfort. I wondered if this sequence wasn't a little bit out of sequence. Shouldn't celebration come after mourning? But on reflection, perhaps it's just the right thing, after all. We don't move nicely through mourning and comfort to places of celebration and hope, do we? Rather, we confess and we lament, we deconstruct and we renovate, we celebrate and are hopeful all at the same time. There's a sort of overlapping Venn diagram that complicates our experience in each of these. Can I really celebrate while also grieving and mourning? Sometimes the answer is yes. At the same time, it seems to me that the grief that we're experiencing is very much a protracted experience. It's an ongoing, present, continuous experience. Every time we think we're rounding a corner, there's a new variant, a new public health order, or this week, a vaccine passport. Are we through this, coming to the other side? Or are we heading heading into another round? The uncertainty and the ongoingness makes for a complicated grief. Never sure if or when we'll be able to finally exhale. Our nervous systems are in a perpetual state of arousal. Like a ghost train at the peony, every corner seems to have another nasty, ready to jump and bite. And so, as we wade in, I want to begin with a confession. As I sat down to write this sermon, pulling together my reading and processing over the last while, the overwhelming sense I had was this I am so tired. And I got to thinking, perhaps you are too. so I wonder if we can gather round today precisely in our weariness to name together some of the things that have grieved us. To see and to witness the things that have grieved others. Ultimately, I'll bring us to a place of curiosity around what it might mean to experience comfort in the midst of our grieving. Not to polyanna our way to God doesn't give you more than you can handle, or God works all things together for those he loves, but to ask truly, what is the comfort that we need? Is there any comfort to be found? Is there any comfort that I might offer? And I want to begin by acknowledging that there is a lot to grieve right now, too much Actually. The murder of George Floyd, and the call for ongoing work of anti-racism that so many of us need to do. The discovery of unmarked graves at residential school sites around the country. The IPCC report on climate. Forest fires that have impacted all of us in big and small ways. The earthquake in Haiti. The fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban and all that we've witnessed since. We need to name these things and each of them truly does demand our attention. And the grief and the trauma of each of these seems to layer and compound on each other. I'm not trained to know how to speak to what happens there, but there's a grief on top of grief on top of grief that really is too much to hold. So I don't wanna minimize any of that, but I am gonna invite us to focus in this morning to, to one piece <laughs> um, and to really focus in on our experience of the pandemic and to begin to ask these questions of mourning and grieving and comfort. My sense is that this experience has been both so extreme and yet in so many ways has become so normal that it can be hard to be processed. It can be hard to process for precisely that reason. It quickly became cliche to receive emails beginning, I hope you and your loved ones are healthy, or news commentators speaking for the thousandth time about these unprecedented times. What a thing it is when what would once have been unimaginable becomes so much part of the water that we swim in, dare I say, part of the air that we breathe, that we're tired even to speak of it. Not only are we tired at the mention of it, but we look around and we see everyone else holding the same lived reality, and we wonder if it's a thing that we get to name at all. We grieve most especially, as we should, for those in marginalized communities who have not had equal outcomes in the pandemic. For those of us who, all things being considered, really haven't done too badly, is there room to voice our experience? This preaching series began intentionally by confessing and lamenting the broader injustices in the world, and it's right that we did that. But today, I think it's okay, important even, to attend also to our own experience, to make space for one another in our pain. And then in attending to our own inner world, we then turn outward to the grief of others. My hope is that there's room for both ends. So I've been thinking about the different kinds of grief many of us have held. The loss of loved ones for some of us. The fear that we've held for loved ones, living through positive diagnosis but unsure of what the outcome would be. The anticipatory anxiety some of us have held for ourselves and others at greater risk due to pre-existing conditions. We've grieved, whether we've been able to articulate it or not, the complexity of truly collective trauma. We've mourned a loss of confidence in the world, world leaders, politics, one another, democracy itself. There's a lot to hold here. Beyond the stories that easily make news headlines, I've been thinking too about the griefs of daily life that many of us hold. My friend and recently published author John Yates has commented that, The pandemic is an intensifier. Whatever your life was like pre-pandemic, it's even more so now. If you live with your family, your life is even more family-dominated. If you're a little solitary, you are now more solitary. If your life is defined by juggling work and family life, the pandemic makes it even more of a juggle. If finances are really tight and everything feels tough, the pandemic makes it more so. The result? Our lives are radically different, but all have one thing in common. We are all overdosing on normal life. There's something true in that, isn't there? In the midst of these unprecedented times, there are ways in which we're also overdosing on normal life. The normal stresses and strains many of us experience have been accentuated. Small business owners, you're used to carrying the weight of responsibility for other people's livelihoods. And yet you felt this burden in ways you never could have imagined through this time. Artists, musicians, playwrights, you've poured creative energy into putting something new in the world only for the plug to be pulled on that play, that show, that gig. And there's a loss of creative expression in that even perhaps a loss of identity. Teachers, you're used to the responsibility of shaping tiny lives, but you never expected to be so acutely aware of the need to care for their physical health in the ways that you've had to. I've been thinking, too, about the grief of the good things in our lives that have gone largely unwitnessed through this time. Weddings without family and friends to witness the celebration and offer wisdom. Babies born, unheld and uncuddled by the community. Significant birthdays that have been hard to celebrate in ways that we might like. House moves, folks moving from local communities altogether with barely a wave goodbye. It's been a deep hiddenness in these last 18 months. And it's not how things should be. And so we grieve, and we mourn. I wonder what other griefs you would name. Let's pause together quietly for a moment and and ask that. What are the losses that you've experienced? Have you felt able to name them? Where do you want your community to witness unseen parts of your life? How might you invite them into that? How might you bear witness for others? I wonder too if you've asked, what difference faith makes to our experience of these losses? how our faith might shape the way that we process our grief. Perhaps you've wondered if it makes any difference at all. It's important that we spend time with this question, as uncomfortable as it may be. So let's get the ground clear first of some things that it doesn't mean. (laughs) We've probably all heard a few of these through the course of the last year and a half. To think as people of faith doesn't mean that we trivialize our grief through misinterpretations of verses like, all things work together for good. No, if we take the Christian story seriously, one of the foundational realities is that there really is a darkness in the world that really does cause pain, Then it really is appropriate that we grieve that. To think as people of faith also doesn't mean that our current experiences are a sign of judgment. A sort of modern day flood story, if you will, calling the world to repent. No, the singular sign of God's work in the world is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the sign that we look to. And to think as people of faith doesn't mean that we dismiss our experience of pain as a sign of faithlessness. That can be the implication of phrases like, I don't need to know, I don't need to worry, I know where I'm going. Is that kind of that sort of suggestion that sits behind it? So let's take a look at what it might mean to think, um, to think as people of faith about this question of, of grief and mourning. And I want to draw here from my friends at Sanctuary Mental Health, a group that seeks to integrate the best in mental health and wellness with robust Christian reflection. Hilary McBride is an ambassador and a key contributor to many of these resources. And I myself have been privileged to serve on the board for the last five years or so. At the beginning of the pandemic, Sanctuary created a resource to engage COVID-19 and grief. And I think a few groups at Artisan have actually worked through some of that material. The series begins by creating a framework in which we learn that mourning is the act of moving through the practices and rituals for processing grief. One of the challenges that we've had is that so many of these practices, including the normal rhythms of death and of loss, have been disrupted. There's this profound sense in which our grief is on hold. Nevertheless, within the Christian tradition, our mourning is expressed spiritually as lament, when we take our grief and we direct it not into a void, but truly direct it to God, calling on God to intervene. That place of lament is very real and often a place of real darkness. I think of John Chrysostom's Dark Night of the Soul. There's no instant rescue or protection from the deepest experiences of what it means to be human just because we're Christian. And yet there is, I believe, a comfort to be found. Blessed are those who mourn, said Jesus, for they shall be comforted. We come across this phrase in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. There are important reasons theologically while Jesus' teachings are here depicted as having taken place on a mountain. We can talk about that later. But I like the poetic suggestion one commentator has made that we might think of this more appropriately as the Sermon from the Valley. It's an allusion to the low place, the place of lack, that seems to be the starting point for grace and for blessing. So, how can this be? When Jesus uses this word blessing, he, uh, in the Greek it's makarioi, and he's doing something very, very powerful. In speaking the blessing, the blessing itself is brought about, it happens. It is, in that sense, performative. I'm grinning with a wry smile because within certain discourse now, to say something is performative is to suggest an empty, perhaps even vainglorious act. I'm kind of somehow bigging myself up by doing this thing, but it's empty and meaningless. That's not what I mean by performative here. What what it means here is to say that words have power to enact the thing which they bespeak. So, for example, when a judge calls not guilty and the accused is literally free, It's a performative statement. It accomplishes that thing which it which it which it in, it bespeaks, or an umpire calls strike or ball, and the ball's status is literally defined. So when Jesus says to those of us who mourn, again not past tense but present participle, those who now mourn or who are now mourning, that we will be comforted, it really means something. <laughs> The etymology of the word comfort, literally comfort, fort meaning strong or strength in Latin, means to come with strength, to come with support. And so there's a coming with strength that Jesus longs to offer to us, not to wipe away our mourning, not to make everything smell of roses, but to strengthen us, to comfort us precisely in that place of darkness. There are lots of ways we each experience the strengthening of Jesus while in the darkness. By all means, put a pin in whatever that is for you. Keep a a lookout for it over the days that come. Bring a conscious awareness to when you're experiencing the strength of Jesus in these days. But I'd like to offer three ways that I believe Jesus comes to us and comforts us in our morning. So the first is that there is comfort in being seen in our morning, Some of you will remember the story in Genesis 16 of Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah and Abram have not been able to have children and Sarah hatches a frankly diabolical literally plan of offering her maidservant Hagar to Abram. It's very problematic. Hagar conceives and Sarah comes to despise her. The text says that she ill-treated Hagar and so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar near a spring in the desert and asks her, Where have you come from? Where are you going? Before saying, The Lord has heard of your misery. Now there's mystery in some parts of their exchange, but it does seem to be of comfort to Hagar when we read it on its own terms. And in response, she says, You are the God who sees me. Further, she says, I have now seen the one. Who sees me? There's a sense of mutual recognition in this exchange. You are the God who sees me, and I have seen the one who sees me. And so, as we mourn these events of these last many years, the tragedies on a grand scale, the missed first birthdays, the unwitnessed moments, may you be comforted by the knowledge that the Lord has heard your misery. May you be comforted, knowing that you are seen. And more than that, may you see as Hagar did, the God who sees you. Secondly, there is comfort in knowing that we do not weep alone. Crystal and I both love trivia, and when I was young, I loved knowing that the shortest verse in the Bible is Anyone know? Jesus wept. Of course, everybody knows it. I was young at the time, I thought it was impressive. In retrospect, I think that I may have reduced uh, to trivia two words that might actually be one of the most significant mic drop moments in all the New Testament. These words are found, of course, in John 11, as we read about the death of Jesus's friend, Lazarus. I didn't speak about the Greek gods, in one version of this I did, but there's, um, do you remember the Greek gods that, who were uh, seen to be as angry gods, the gods whose judgment was to be feared, whose wrath was capricious, unpredictable, and unnerving. Can you imagine these gods weeping at the tomb of their friend? Again, you might remember the story. News comes to Jesus that his friend Lazarus, we're told explicitly he's a friend that Jesus loves, is sick. Jesus is very clear that their sickness will not end in death, yet when Lazarus does die, Jesus again, full of faith, says, I'm going to wake him up. So when he arrives at the tomb, Mary, remember this, she earlier had washed Jesus' feet with her tears, runs to meet him, falls at his feet again, and weeping says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I just love what happens next. We read that when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled It's a verse later that we read simply, Jesus wept. The God of all creation, who can calm the storm by the words from his mouth, who knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and if you know the story, you know he does. He is moved by the grief of his friends, and he weeps with them in their loss. So in this time of such great loss, in your weeping, May you know the comfort of the God who weeps with you. Thirdly, there is comfort in knowing that he will nourish us when we can no longer sustain ourselves. In preparation for this sermon, I return to my great friend, Julian of Norwich. Uh, Blythe spoke briefly about her a few months ago uh, when she was preaching. Julian was an anchoress in the 14th century, kind of like a nun, but a bit different. Um, She's cloistered by herself and attached to a small church uh, here, actually, in Norwich. She had some amazing visions of Jesus's suffering on the cross that profoundly shaped her experience and her thinking. Now, Julian lived through the existential threat of the Black Death, which wiped out a third of Europe in the Middle Ages, And it passed through Norwich three times in her lifetime. I'm not sure if they called them waves in those days or not. But her teachings brought profound theological insight to the question of where is God in the world in the midst of such great suffering? How should we understand the pain and suffering that we experience? Julian has much to say on this, but I want to just focus on one element of her thinking. And that is the sense that she brings of God as mother. And I want to acknowledge in in doing that, that there is both gift and challenge in using familial language of God. There is gift in that parenthood is familiar to us, right? It's easier to relate to ideas of parenthood in some ways than God as king or warrior or even a shepherd. It's so far from our experience, it's hard to relate to. And yet I also know that there's pain in that familiarity, as many of us in the room will have had different experiences of of motherhood, of fatherhood. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, for folks in julian's case it seems that she has a positive relationship with her mother at least to the extent that her mother is a welcome presence at her sick bed we read that in in the book that she writes Uh, certainly julian's sense of god as mother was more positive than the view offered to her by the medieval church of god as father which also can be a really good thing but wasn't in the hands of the medieval church So Julian leans into the ideas that we see in Isaiah, that God will not forget his people just as, and I quote, a woman cannot forget her infant. Or in Matthew, when Jesus likens himself to a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings, both of which I think speak of a sense of close bonds, of being held, of protection and warmth. I was reminded this morning, actually my parents messaged and said they'd be watching from Wales, and I remembered uh, this Welsh word kutch, it's not in my notes here, but it's a Welsh word kutch, it doesn't translate well into English, but it's that sense of a, a mother's embrace, it's that safety, it's that warmth, there's something unique about a kutch that you just can't quite describe. It can also be a place, there's lots of really cute little restaurants in Wales called kutch, it's got that sense of like snug homey cozy it's it's all of these things kind of put together and I think there's something in that that Julian is drawing on when she speaks of this language of God as mother and so to think of God as mother is to consider the ways in which the triune God also brings comfort to us mothers have no magic fixes they can't take away the pain we experience in the world but mothers hold us they warm us They offer, and here it is again, comfort to us, right in the midst of our pain. And mothers, too, in a very profound way, have the capacity to feed us, even from within their own bodies. And in the same way, when we come to the table in just a little bit, Jesus gives us himself to feed on also. His body and his blood to nourish and sustain us. So in this season of grieving, may you be nourished when you can no longer sustain yourself. And may you know the strong embrace of God as mother. One of the goals of this sermon series has has been to begin to make space to process different elements of our experience through this pandemic. And I want to emphasize it really is just a beginning There's a long road ahead, even before we can fully speak of coming out the other side, much less having journeyed through the complexity of our emotions. My hope today has been to begin to name some of those places of grief and mourning, even the griefs we've maybe not felt we were quite allowed to feel or to name. On top of that, my hope has been to communicate something of how powerful it is that Jesus should announce a blessing on us precisely in these places of pain and to build imagination for some of the ways that Jesus comforts us, comes with strength in those places. So as we come to a close, I would love for us to hold some space together, to take some time to to name our own personal griefs and to receive some of the comfort that we so desperately need. I've asked Nelson to lead us in a Teze song called Wait for the Lord. And the words are very simple if you, if you don't know it. Wait for the Lord, whose day is near. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart. So as you sing, lean into that experience of your breath. Name your griefs and breathe them out. As you breathe in, breathe in the comfort of Jesus who sees you in your mourning, who weeps with you in your tears, and who nourishes you when you can no longer sustain yourself. Breathe in, breathe out, wait for the Lord. Above all else, may you see the God who sees you.